Are you a health-conscious, motivated mom who wants to work part-time from home? Do you want to enhance your family's income, get out of debt, experience financial freedom, create a flexible schedule, set your own hours? These benefits are available to top performers of this 34-year-old, solid, stable company. www.lisastafford.com Achieve personal wellness goals and make a difference in the lives of others. Receive coaching from the top achievers at this company. For more information, go online, lisastafford.com. Hey, got a marketing department? Outsource it. Electronic Theater, a full-service multimedia ad agency, will animate your business. Still stuck with paper? Go digital. Engage your prospective clients with dynamic media, including voice, animation, video, music, and even virtual tours. Your interactive presentation illustrates who you are and what you do. Whether it's projected onto screens, handed out on CD with auto web link, or streaming from your website, Multimedia will grab your client's attention and keep it there. Electronic Theater makes it simple. We are knowledgeable, experienced, friendly professionals, and surprisingly affordable. So get your message out to the world. Electronic Theater, spotlighting your business. Check out our services and low CD replication pricing at electronictheater.com or call us at 760-436-8449. If you want to live a healthier lifestyle naturally, visit wellnow.ca, an all-Canadian quality resource. We provide the information and knowledge you need to make your best choices. Wellnow.ca gives you access to natural products and solutions, lifestyle services, and licensed health practitioners. Our free monthly newsletter delivers healthy living tips, articles, and expert opinions. Become empowered. Go to wellnow.ca today. Have a question or comment? To speak to our show hosts or guests during the live show, call in toll-free in North America, 877-514-7300. And from elsewhere in the world, call 001-858-277-1444. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. Today we're talking with Mark Dunkelman, author of numerous books on the 154th New York Volunteer Infantry Regiment. The latest and uh, in some ways most challenging is Brothers One and All, a spree de corps in a Civil War regiment in which we see advanced the first real in-depth study of what made a Civil War regiment such a tightly knit community. That's a, a, a fact that's long been assumed by Civil War historians and our guest today, Mark Dunkelman, has looked at one regiment in great detail to show exactly how that esprit de corps was generated. Mark, a question I, I wanted to ask you about the soldiers in the regiment, uh, again, relates to something that, that I have found in reading a, the letters of Civil War soldiers, Union Civil War soldiers, I should specify. As the war went on, politically, there was a tendency, it seems to me, of the soldiers to become more radical, more anti-slavery, not necessarily uh, changing their politics, but simply by exposure to the institution. Did you find that in the uh, in the 154th New York? Absolutely. Yes, the men became more sympathetic to uh, black freedom, and they grew very acceptable of the idea of black soldiers. 
uh, one member of the regiment became an officer in, a, in uh, one of the so-called colored regiments. And I also think that there was a political coalescence as the war progressed. Um, there were, according to the election results in Cattaraugus and Chautauqua counties, in 1860, it was about 60 to 40 percent Republican majority. I think by the end of the Civil War, almost everybody in the 154th New York was a re voted Republican. And that's borne out by the 1864 election results or comments about the results uh, within the regiment, which I quote in my book. You had a, a letter from one soldier who said he was a Democrat before the war, and he encountered in Georgia, I think it was, uh, a young enslaved woman who was of mixed race and uh, you know, resembled a, a white person, and yet was held in slavery, and this changed his attitude to the institution of slavery. It was a very interesting letter. Right. That was uh, George Brown. Yeah. Um, I wrote an entire article on this subject for the Journal of Negro History and went into great depth about it. Uh, when the regiment first arrived in, on, in the front, their comments, and of course there, there was virtually no black population in, in uh, western New York State, minuscule at best, uh, their first comments about the blacks that they encountered were they described them as part of the scenery. But as they got to know these people, uh, and as they, particularly as the war went on, and especially down in Georgia and the Carolinas during Sherman's campaigns, when they realized how much help the people could provide, uh, they they became uh, quite friendly towards them, or at least appreciative of, of the help that they could provide. Um, uh, obviously, there were other cases where they abused them, although I haven't uh, been able to document anything like that. I'm sure it went on. And uh, I also relate an anecdote about how they um, they had a ceremony. Incidentally, it's one of the stories my father remembered his grandfather telling him of throwing initiates up in blanket tossing, uh, which uh, made them an unofficial member of the regiment. And that, that's the way they, quote, mustered in, and quote, uh, black adjuncts to the 154th New York during Sherman's campaign. I wonder if that, uh, the, the person who attached himself uh, to your great-grandfather went through that ceremony. He probably got a blanket tossing. I would think so. Now, at the same time, these soldiers, being the products of their time and place, certainly entered the war with a great deal of racism. I mean, you quote their letters that show, uh, in many cases, a negative view of African Americans. But some of them come around to opposing slavery from a different point of view. I think William Charles, you quote, uh, is writing that slavery did the white man more harm than the black. And when he goes through the South and sees the uh, both the conditions of the, the farms and the uh, the treatment of the slaves and the the general lack of prosperity of, of the uh, the white farmers, he he's he holds that opinion more strongly. Yes, and as a matter of fact, William Charles was detached from the regiment uh, through much of the latter part of the war and established a school for black children in northern Alabama when he was stationed there. Just something he did on his own. He got some support from the uh, freedmen's aid societies, but uh, largely did it on his own. And there were other members of the regiment. I think that Ariel Wellman, the officer that I mentioned, who 
Well, actually, he was a private in the 154th New York who took the examination and went, I guess, to the school for the training of uh, officers in colored regiments in Philadelphia, went through all the protocol, and became an officer with the 42nd U.S. Colored Troops. Uh, he might have been doing that for the captain's pay. On the other hand, he no doubt had some altruistic uh, motivation. Now, after the war, as said some people might remain in the South, the vast majority of the survivors would return to New York. And then over time, uh, various authors have pointed out that, that there was no, there, there was a period of hibernation, as Gerald Linderman calls it, when the Civil War survivors didn't want to talk about it, wanted to get on with their lives. And it's not until some 15, 20 years later in the 1880s that you see an expansion in the veterans organizations in the uh, the GAR in the north and the UCV in the south that you the the newspaper they, they start printing publications they start building monuments they start getting back involved in commemoration and this was certainly the case with the 154th New York is that right with some minor variations yeah yeah they largely followed and I agree with Lindemann's thesis about the pattern of so-called hibernation and revival and very few people have looked at uh, the post-war, the veteranhood of Union soldiers. And that's one thing that I was determined to do in this book, because uh, esprit de corps did not end in 1865. It carried over. And one of the main, actually, the way I end my book is in a discussion of a regimental history. Now, to me, this is the prime, the epitome of post-war esprit de corps as the publication of a regimental history. I did a little survey. There were roughly 190 New York State infantry regiments, 60 of them, a third, published histories in the, in the post-war years. And this now, is these, something they do at their own expense? At their own expense, largely, yeah. yeah. Uh, it was an expensive proposition. But if you had a flourishing regimental association, this was a possibility. Now, obviously, these were fighting regiments. These weren't regiments that did, you know, three years of garrison duty in Baltimore. Uh, they had a story to tell, and the 154th certainly had a story to tell. But in their case, something odd happened. An outsider took it upon himself to be the regimental historian. And this was almost a decade before the regiment formed a survivor's association and began to hold their reunions. And this fellow was named Edwin Dwight Northrop of Ellicottville. He was a lawyer. He was an eccentric. He was not the man I don't think the veterans would have chosen to chronicle their deeds. He was a socialist who, who corresponded with Eugene Debs. He was an anti-religionist who particularly hated Catholics and uh, the priesthood. He named his. He bragged about his relationship to Ulysses S. Grant, but he named his first son Robert E. Lee Northrop. How do you think the veterans of the 154th thought about that? He liked to work late. Uh, he, he was a night owl who, who uh, was working while the rest of the village of Ellicottville slept. Uh, and looking through his papers, I came upon envelopes of litter he had picked off the street and labeled as to the date. He was a true eccentric. He shot a man claiming self-defense, and of course he was a lawyer. He, he got off of that. Uh, a true eccentric. And he took it upon himself, and obviously he had the co cooperation of veterans of the 154th New York uh, because they, of course, wanted to see their deeds chronicled. And he worked for 20 years on this book. 
and he amassed, he was a braggart. He amassed what was going to be the best regimental history ever written, blah, blah, blah. And then he made a deal with the Courier Company of Buffalo, New York, a big job printing outfit, to publish the book. But the problem was he issued a flyer on his own before he had finalized his deal with the Courier Company, announcing its imminent publication. And the Courier Company took exception to this, and Northrop, being the stubborn, strong-willed man that he was, took exception to their exception and said, okay, you do business your way and I'll do it mine. And he made one more sort of half-hearted effort to uh, to line up a publisher uh, and didn't do it. And after 20 years of work, and I've looked through this man's diaries all the times he interviewed members of the regiment, traveled to the battlefields with him, work on the 154th disappears from his diary and correspondence. He has, in essence, he shelved the project. And there's all these pathetic letters coming in to him by aging veterans and their survivors, their daughters and sons, saying, when is your history going to be published? We want to read the history of the 154th New York. And by this point, Northrop had, had shelved it. He had, he had quit. He had quit. He had betrayed, as I put it, the esprit de corps of the 154th New York. And the book was never published. His manuscript apparently was destroyed. I've gone through all of his papers. They're at Cornell University. Uh, 26 boxes full of stuff. And fortunately for me, there's a lot of the makings of his book. The notes he took by hand during interviews with many veterans of the regiment. Uh, and of course, as a lawyer, he was good at... at uh, transcribing testimony. I mean, the, the stuff is, it's a treasure trove, Jerry, of, of thoughts 30 years after the war by these guys. And of course, because it is 30 years after the war, it has to be used with some caution. But it's also astonishing. That how, is an, an amazing thing to find for any regiment. Exactly. The manuscript itself, however, I'm sorry? The, the manuscript itself is not it does anywhere. not exist. There's a fragment of it in which he's discussing the Pioneer Corps. And what's fascinating about Northrop is because he was an outsider, this had advantages. He was very interested in desertion, in malfeasance on the part of officers, all the sorts of dirty linen that normally didn't get into whitewashed regimental histories. And so there's, there's a tremendous amount of uh, human interest stuff in there that's uh, just can't be obviously can't be found anywhere else and it's a treasure trove and and i would say the same about your book brothers one and all esprit de corps in the civil war regiment just as the soldiers of that unit would say to one another when times were bad well who would not be a soldier with a smile i would say who would not want to know what the civil war regiment was like if you want to know i highly recommend this book please take a look at it uh by mark dunkelman mark thanks for joining us today in civil war talk radio Thank you so much for inviting me, Jerry. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio.